Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? And welcome to episode 141 of Writer on the Road. We are sitting back laying here in the lazy days of summer here in Australia uh, and we've kicked into our summer series of reading fiction. If you haven't got your copy of our launch issue of Author Success Stories, don't forget to subscribe to Writer on the Road and you will have the first issue delivered to your inbox straight away. Not only does it have interviews with our favourite Australian authors, it also has excerpts of their new work, author biographies and lovely, lovely images made, especially by me and my techie, the beautiful Samantha Hammond, as we, we find our way into how the insights of a magazine work. And I'm talking through my fucking cat now, so I'm going to stop. Sit back, listen to... Episode 41, no, sit back, listen to, let's start again. Sit back, listen to the beautiful Belinda Alexandra as she tells us all about the writing life. And welcome to a very special summer edition of Writer on the Road. Uh, We're bringing all our very best authors to you for uh, beach reading and I've got the best of the best here. I'd like to welcome Belinda Alexandra. Welcome, Belinda. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that lovely compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I've been really excited, everybody, doing my research. I had to go into Dimmicks and have a look at all the beautiful books that Belinda has on the shelves. And Belinda, they are so colourful. Your your covers just jumped out at me. Yeah, I I think that's intentional. Uh, A lot of people say that reading my books, you know, you need a passport because you're going to go to uh, exotic um, locations. And uh, I guess that's what we choose the covers that are going to convey that that atmosphere that you really are going on a trip. So forget the washing, forget the lawn, forget the kids, forget the husband, um, you're going somewhere. Yeah, now I've got to tell you, everybody, I was reading The Invitation, which is your newest book, Belinda, which I'm guessing you already knew. (laughs) And I was reading it at school today because all in the name of research, everybody. And I forgot the kids, you know, this this thing just transported me immediately into I was in France and I'm going I could I could really sit here and read this all day but then the kids started mucking up and I had to stop (laughs) Um, yeah yeah. now let's start with your newest book The Invitation uh now it's only just been released here in Australia hasn't it yes that's right first of November so yes it's a newbie out there yeah. Now, this book has got to be the coolest, everybody. It's got two sisters and one is the good guy and one is the bad guy and the good guy is really, really good, a bohemian and a writer, so, you know, we're hooked already. Um, but that bad woman is a bitch, isn't she? <laughs> she is. And uh, everyone enjoys reading about her and I enjoyed writing her. So I definitely discovered that there's something about people that um, – don't let anything stop them, including being nice or being polite. They they are fascinating. Um, my publisher put it, she said she just kept wondering what Caroline was going to do next. 
because you just uh, couldn't um, predict it. And, of course, I think what's interesting about that is writers, when we're formulating our stories, we always bring our stuff to our stories and mine was that I always wanted to have a sister. I had two gorgeous brothers that I grew up with but no sister and so my fantasy was we'd be doing each other's hair, we'd be going out together and sharing clothes but then I'd look at my friends who actually did have sisters and I would think maybe not such a <laughs> such a good experience. So I had already written about sisters that were very close in Silver Wattle so I thought, oh, what, what about two sisters that really are, you know, um, opposed, so different to each other and one is constantly manipulating the other? Yeah, this sister is really cool, everybody. She is, I think I read somewhere she was a sociopath. I think yes. it was, um, I can't even remember where I was reading it. It, it made me laugh. I thought oh, I was on Teresa Smith's uh, yes. review and it was, a, yes. it was a beautiful review, everyone. If you haven't been over to Teresa Smith's um, page, go and have a look because she's got all our beautiful favourite Australian authors over there and she's reviewed yes. them all, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, she really um, engaged with it. And the sociopath is interesting because there's a whole dialogue now about narcissism and, and psychopaths and that we are in the age of um, we used to be in the age of the neurotic and that's a, a term that Freud um, coined and it was sort of when people felt guilt and shame but nowadays there's less guilt there's less shame there's more um, center on yourself you know not not really worrying about other people and um, I love reading psychology books and I thought how fascinating to have one of the sisters to be a, a narcissist. Um, and we've all met one. We may not realise it or not, but somebody that just can be so nice and so charming but something is always just a little off. Yeah. Now, I married one, everybody, so I, oh, did I you? the word sociopath, I thought, oh, yeah, I know that. But it's, it's an unusual term. I very rarely hear it um, in relation yes. to women, which makes it really yes. interesting. Yes, yes, it certainly does. I mean, as women, we're quite aware of sociopaths because is the guy that offers to carry us shopping to the front door a really nice gentleman or is he a psychopath basically that's going to murder us? It's a question we always have to ask. But a lot of us have learned to turn off our radar with these kind of people and think, oh, I mustn't be judgmental, maybe I'm judging them too harshly. But I say your gut knows. And if your gut is saying the words are not matching your feeling, I say go with your feeling. Yeah. Now this is this is really, I guess, at the heart of all your novels. Now I've read some I've read some of the other ones. I think I got hooked at your very, very first one. Um, I bought that many years ago. White Gardenia. Yeah, and, and from then I was hooked. So right from novel number one, you were, I guess, writing those very character-driven novels where we got to know our characters intimately. And that's what you're famous for, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think people fascinate me and how they work and why they do the things that they do. I think that's writers that are constantly fascinated with, with people. Um, you know, we, we tend to be, I think, more tolerant than the general public about different personalities because different personalities um, fascinate us. Like why is that person a grumpy, you know, uh, impossible person to be with? We're fascinated by that rather than repulsed. <laughs> and uh, our readers can view those characters safely in, in fiction. 
Yeah, and you have such, I guess you have uh, so much to choose from, don't you, with the characters in this novel in particular, um, because you've got your bohemian writer, Muso, who we all adore. You've got Paris, which we love, and Natasha Lester's spending a lot of her time over there writing novels around there at the moment. But I was immediately hooked. I'm going to New York next July for a couple of of months, everybody. I'll just slip that in. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Now, you're talking about the Gilded Age of America right at the end of the 1890s. uh, Yes, that's right. The early 20th century. And the Gilded Age, it has this romance about it, but you quote Mark Twain as saying, well, actually, let's have a look. Let's peel back the layers under the Gilded and have a look what's going on there. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, it's it's um, an age that sort of um, parallels to the Victorian age in England. But the thing of that uh, makes America different was the amount of wealth people were making in steel and, uh, you know, the railways and um, coal and so on. And, you know, this is the age of the Vanderbilts and, um, you know, some of the, the richest people in America. And, um, you know, but the wealth wasn't shared. It didn't trickle down. There was also, you know, immense poverty for all the immigrants who were pouring into New York at that time. And it's sort of um, being said that we're in a current Gilded Age now where, you know, there's the super rich and then there's people who can't afford basic medicines and, and supplies. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's not as romantic as it sounds back then. The no. reality of it is we're actually seeing it as being very, very ugly and we're not even going to go near Donald Trump and the um, <laughs> shooting of the people at the border. Um, no. But back in those days, even um, the the rich that you refer to, and I think on, on your blog somewhere or on your um, Facebook page, you've got a list of those people. Uh, and it's really interesting because we see those people as really, really romantic. We don't think about the underbelly, do we? No, we don't. We don't realise that a lot of those families were making money from tenement buildings, which were fire traps and disease traps, um, and they were getting the maximum rent that they could uh, for people that could barely afford food and were living in shocking conditions while they were living, you know, they had uh, solid gold toilets and things like that up on Fifth Avenue and just this extreme wealth. It was almost, it's almost a craziness. They had so much wealth, they didn't really know how to spend it or really how to enjoy their lives. They created a lot of intrigue, a lot of competition with each other and really in the end, although they were, you know, materially better off, were no more happier than any anyone else. They created their own uh, sort of misery, which is a kind of human craziness, isn't it? Yeah, and and this is what I picked up very very um, very quickly in in the novel is the parallels are there for today. The parallels yes. are exactly there. It's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, now I I took the took the um, liberty of making a little quote that I wanted to read out on the podcast today. And this is where we talk about how the more things change, the more things stay the same. We're kicking back to uh, Paris here. And it's, is it Emma? Is it Emma, your main character? Emma says, this is when they're in Paris, she's speaking to her bohemian mates. I described the outline of my novella about a woman who returns to life as a cat and visits her friends and relatives to discover what they really thought of uh, thought of her when she was alive. Now, how cool is that? Um, <laughs> I thought, 
Isn't that what every writer would love? Yeah, Emma has a, a vivid imagination. She's a uh, writer of gothic and fantasy fiction. And I've had many in my um, previous books, there have been many different um, professions that my characters have had and I've enjoyed exploring those, but I've never had a writer. So I thought, well, with book eight, it would be good to reveal a little bit of the inner workings of a writer, their imagination, um, how they go about um, doing their work. And, of course, Emma is quite superstitious, as a lot of uh, writers are. Don't necessarily see it as a as a process but rather a kind of magic uh, conjuring up uh, these stories and you don't know at the beginning of each book it doesn't matter how many books you've written you don't know quite what is going to happen and so it was fun to have Emma sort of convey the way she observes people um, even from the time she's a child she's observing people and writing things down and and daydreaming and she has this superstition if she writes in first person she's going to create, she's almost going to manifest that situation. And so she's very wary of what she writes in, um, in first person. Of course, towards the end of the novel, she does conjure or believes that she conjures up something quite awful by writing in first person. Yeah, that's what I'll be doing um, in the middle of the night, everybody. I'll be finishing off this thing because, trust me, if you pick it up, you won't put it down. <laughs> but it's interesting we're talking about the parallels and everything like that. There is a little bit of you in in that novel because straight away some of the research I've done, yeah. Um, and we talk about your cats and uh, yeah. everyone. Belinda and I were talking just before the podcast on on the Facebook page. Belinda has a picture of three beautiful cats cats stretched out on this pretty amazing furniture, um, <laughs> looking very comfortable. Thank you very much. And next minute, I'm reading about cats in your novel. I'm guessing that was no coincidence. Oh, well, animals feature. There's usually a special animal or a group of animals in each of my books. And I often say that the uh, human characters are all fictional, but the animals are based on actual animals that I've known. And for me, the interaction between humans and animals, it's a, it's a very interesting relationship. So they appear as characters um, of their own in, in books as well. And, yes, whether it's a lizard or whether it's a possum or whether it's a cat, it's usually one that I've had some sort of association <laughs> with. Now, everyone, um, we're writers. Most of us are writers who listen here and, and avid readers, I'm, I'm going to suggest. But as far as learning how to write a novel, picking up any of your, uh, any of your novels, we straight away learn about pace, we learn about characterisation, but we also learn about how much research to put in and how much research yeah. to leave out. Um, that's really, really important. And that's a skill that I'm guessing uh, comes to you very naturally because I think somewhere along the road I read that you are a natural-born storyteller. So that, that your intuition must kick in a little bit there. I think so because when I'm writing, I'm imagining not just the story unfolding but I'm actually imagining the people that I'm telling the story to, almost as if we're sitting around a campfire and we're telling stories. And if people start looking bored, I know that I have to uh, up the pace a bit or if they look like they don't believe something then I think oh, okay I'm pushing that a little bit too far so I'm very very responsive uh, to my readers and I think I would definitely say I'm a natural born storyteller but not necessarily a natural born writer 
Um, that skill takes an enormous amount of work. Uh, you have a picture in your head of the story you want to tell, but how to express it um, can become, you know, it's really um, a, a very, very conscious task of constantly improving what you've written, going back and revising, making it clearer, making it brighter, and picking, as you said, you know, just those details, not bogging it down with detail, but picking the detail that is really going to make that scene come alive. Yeah. Uh, you can't describe every single part of the room, but enough parts of the room to make your readers feel that they're there. And if, you know, because the audience is writers, I'd give this bit of advice that I've learned is that um, don't do big blocks of description. Uh, that's an old-fashioned technique. Uh, a way to keep the pace going is to just, first off, you've got to start with the visual because your reader has to see things very quickly. They have to see your character immediately, their physical description. But you, then you don't have to... Um, describe everything else about the character because you can show it and how they speak. Do they speak quickly in clipped sentences or do they have long elongated sentences that never seem to end? Do they move quickly or do they move slowly? And any of their gestures and the, whether they speak loudly or softly, all of that will bring that character to life within the action of the story. So you don't have to get too bogged down with every uh, description of the character and that sort of keeps the pace going. Yeah, and pace is something that smacked me in the face today yes. with your story. I didn't think I was reading a story. I mm. was engrossed in the story. Now, we're talking a matter of I give my kids 15 minutes reading time, everybody, so yes. I had 15 minutes and I was inside that story. I was living that story. That is a rare skill indeed, I should imagine. Well, for me, it's a story, when you read a, a really good book, for me it's like Narnia. You go into the wardrobe and you disappear and you go into a completely different world. So when you come back, it's almost a shock. And I would say that, um, you know, the books that I enjoy reading most are the, that give you the same feeling like when you've been away from your home for a long time. And you come back and the furniture is the same and everything else is the same about your home, but you've changed because you've had this experience. And so with each book, I really try to give uh, my readers the richest possible experience to pull them out of their own world and to sort of lead them through this other world that's completely different to what they know in their daily life, but really feel that they're participating in it that they're part of the magic, they're part of the, the story. So when they do put their heads up from the book, it's like, oh, my goodness, where am I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like waking up from a dream. Yeah, and that's, uh, I was speaking to another writer recently and we talked, oh, it was Darry Fraser, everyone. We talked about, as a writer, going into that zone or being very mindful and being very present with your writing that's how you get that depth isn't it you you have nothing else but your the world of your characters in front of you yes and it's terrible when someone interrupts you <laughs> i have to say once you've created that world and you're deep in that world and you're lost in that world and then somebody goes would you like a cup of tea <laughs> just, or usually i don't get offers like that i usually get something like you know the drain is blocked or something <laughs> something you know, uh, not not quite as exciting as a cup of tea. 
And it does drag, it's almost like a shock that you've been dragged out of this world that you've started to create. And I think it is quite funny. It's quite difficult for writers to live with other people because quite often we look like we're not working. We look like we're just staring into space or something, but we could be working very hard. We could be completely in our own scene. And um, I do wander around my garden a lot and I think I must look very unemployed, you know. <laughs> yes. My neighbours must just think, oh, there's a mad woman who doesn't do anything all day wandering around her garden looking very dreamy. Yes. But, yeah. And I think they know I'm producing a 500-page novel. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's part of the... Um, I think that's part of the myth that we need to explode. Uh, I think it's still in order to write really good books, you need to live and breathe them. And there's this, and especially in the indie publishing world, oh, you can write for 10 minutes while you're in the supermarket queue or you can write for 15 minutes while you're picking your kids up from soccer. It doesn't create the best writing in the world, does it? Well, you know what? It, yes and no, because White Gardenia, when I was right, I mean, see, I believe that you need a quiet little hut on a mountain <laughs> and be surrounded by flowers and, and beauty and have somebody deliver your lunch to the door so you don't have to do any of that. But who has that life? Really, who, who has it? Even some of the big-name authors don't have that life. They've got children. They've got you know, sick parents. They've got all sorts of responsibilities. And I think sometimes that idea, when we do get that sort of space to write in, it's wonderful. But I think the idea that we can only write if we have that space stops us from creating things. And when I wrote White Gardenia, I was working for a conference company in New York and I lived with five Scottish girls. There was never quiet. My room was um, off the kitchen with the telephone right outside my door so I'd be trying to imagine these Russian characters and I'd hear all these Scottish voices around me and White Gardenia was written on planes it was written on the subway it was written in lunch times it was written at four o'clock in the morning it was written really in those snatches of time and what I say about that is when you found a story that you're passionate about somehow you can find the time and you can keep returning to it. Because I often say, how do CEOs and politicians and people who are pressed to the minute with their time still manage to have affairs? I mean, where do they find the time? And obviously when people are driven by something, by <laughs> desire or passion, it's amazing how time efficient they can, you know, become. And I think, well, we have to see our writing as a love affair. And quite often each book that I start, I feel like I'm beginning a new love affair, a new country, a new set of characters. And I think when we approach uh, books as love affairs or better than love affairs, because they actually produce something worthwhile, whereas <laughs> many of our love affairs just crashed bottoms up, um, a love affair with your book, with your writing, is a special thing that you'll it'll always be part of you and it makes the magic of writing. What better thing to do than to engage with your creativity and to express it and bring those characters to life? You heard it here first, everybody, on Writer <laughs> on the Road. <laughs> Make your grand passion your novels. Yes. Now, I love it. Um, your... Overnight success took 10 years. Yes, not quite an overnight success. Um, I 
uh, grew up, you know, with a, with a mother who encouraged my writing, which was amazing. But I grew up in a culture where it was really get a real job because there weren't any writers around me or anyone that I grew up in a family of engineers and extremely practical people. Um, and so I was doing things like advertising and publicity and so on, but I went to America to go to university. And I have to say, we do make fun of Americans a lot, but there's one thing that they do very well, and that is that they believe in dreams. Um, you know, they are the land of Hollywood, and I wasn't far away from Hollywood. And uh, when I told people I would really love to be a writer, they'd go, why not? You know, and they say, you've got to go for your dreams. So when I came back to Australia, that's um, what I decided to do was an actual conscious decision. But unlike the movies where it sort of all happens in a montage in three minutes of screen time, you know, my dream took a lot longer than that. It, you know, it took 10 years and basically everything I wrote was rejected. And I mean everything, whether it was a letter to the editor, a, a poem, uh, you know, a romance short story, uh, a, the full-length novel that I wrote, the self-help book that I wrote, um, everything was rejected. And um, I can't say the rejection didn't hurt and that I had some incredible strength that I knew, oh, one day I'll succeed and all these people are foolish because I'm really a star. Uh, it didn't. Each rejection really hurt and I didn't know if I'd ever succeed. I can't even say exactly what kept me going except maybe I didn't know what else to do because I just was a writer and I just had to uh, had to write um, but I was really glad that I um, persisted and recently I read a quote and I, I have it actually here so I'll see if I can just quickly get it because I think this is amazing it's from Harriet Beecher Stowe and it says when everything goes against you and it seems you cannot hold on for a minute longer never give up then for that is just the time and place when the tide will turn and I've, I've found that true in my life over and over again, just at that point where you think, I can't do it anymore, I want to give up, I'm tired. Um, you just, that's when you, you think that, in fact, the Navy SEALs say when you've reached that point, you've only given 40%. You haven't given 100%. You've still got 60% in you. And I still, even now I'm a published writer, I still have that experience when I get my structural report from the editor. You know, I've spent maybe a year and a half working intensively on a novel. I feel that I've given everything I possibly could to it. And then I'll get like a five-page report on all the things that are wrong with it <laughs> and what I need to do to fix it. And I'll sort of lie on the floor. I mean, it's like so shocking after all that effort. I'll lie on the floor and I'll think, I have nothing more to give. I have nothing more to give. And then I'll get up and I'll listen to the theme song from Rocky for a, a couple of times. And I'll say, oh, I've got an idea what I can do. Or, oh, that's a good point the editor's made. Yes, I could do that. And suddenly it all becomes possible. So a lot of the things that block us in our minds are just really in our minds and we just need to take a step back and say I can do this and I can keep going and this is the thing that's going to make the novel special because a half-built building is not a building. You know, you have to complete your job. You have to 
do the rewriting, do the editing, stick with it until this diamond is a diamond, you know. So don't don't sell yourself short by not producing your best work. You have to complete the job, everyone. I'm, I'm writing that down because so many of us will write and write and then stop before we put it out there. Now, you have, Belinda, you have these. Well, I'm going to read them out, everyone. Uh, I do have pictures of them. I was in at Dimmick's the other day and they're all piled up neatly for me. Uh, white gardenia, uh, wild lavender, silver wattle, a Tuscan rose, gold earrings, sapphire skies, southern... Is it Southern Ruby or is Southern it... Ruby, yeah. Yeah, and then finally the invitation. The invitation is a little bit different. I noticed you, yeah. you didn't call it a saga like the other ones. You've, you've moved to, I um, guess, more relationship, mothers and daughters and daughters and sisters, is it? Yes. I um, was intrigued by the genre of domestic noir and I thought, I wonder if I can, can combine history and that sort of feeling that women aren't safe in their home. Home should be, the idea of domestic noir is home should be a place where you feel safe and your family should be a place where a woman feels safe. We usually say a woman's place is in, in the home or that's been how we thought about it. But what we know in Australia, that home is a very dangerous place for a lot of women. In fact, most women who are murdered are murdered in their homes. It's not a safe place at all for many women. And so I just wanted to explore what is it like when your family members are dangerous? And um, to do that, I had to create a more intense story of a relationship. So although the history is still there with the historical background and um, creating a time, bringing that to life and bringing New York and the Gilded Age to, to life, it really is the story of these two sisters and their dynamic and then the constant manipulation, which is dangerous because... Um, when you're constantly manipulated, you go against your better judgment and you get talked into all sorts of things that are not in your best uh, interest, which is what Caroline is constantly doing to, to Emma. Yeah, look, she's a little bit naughty, everybody. I've got, I've got to tell you this, I know this. Uh, and, and you do talk about uh, women's rights within the marriage and, yeah. and we do have that deceit, betrayal and moral corruption. Those things are so topical, aren't they? Yes, yes, Absolutely. Because the Gilded Age, of course, Gilded is not golden. Golden would imply that it was a period of great culture and advancement in, in how you treat um, society and how you, um, you know, advancement in education and so on. It was really just glittering. So really just the me, me uh, generation. And we see that uh, quite often now. I mean, our politics is just a complete shambles. There's nothing dignified, you know, in it at all. Where are our statesmen and women? You know, it's like a bunch of squabbling children, really, that we're dealing with. Not, not really the sort of people, you, not the Gandhis and not the, you know, the great leaders that we, um, we want to look up to. So it's sort of just a very selfish, um, very uh, individual uh, outlook that a lot of people have rather than working together um, for the benefit of, of everybody. Yeah. And all our great writers over time, everybody, and we can go right back to Hemingway uh, and Scott Fitzgerald and all of those writers, uh, they always explored the issues of the time yeah. and, and delved into it and used, um, I guess, the voice of the writer to 
to see where this stuff's going to take us. Your books resonate with people, I'm guessing, because you're doing that with our times and that's what makes your books so great. Well, that's what I love about history because at school I didn't enjoy history at all because history there wasn't really, it was all about events. It really wasn't about people. And the way I look at it, people create history. Um, If you look at Germany just before the Second World War, that came out of how people were thinking about life, how they were thinking about each other, what their fears were, and then it sort of manifested into this, you know, complete disaster that swept over the country. So we actually do create history. We create racism with our thinking, um, you know, what we focus on, or we can create great advancements in culture depending on what each of us are deciding to focus on as individuals. And um, so for me, that's the fascinating thing about a writer. And with each of my books, I've seen in the, the countries a repetition of patterns. So, for instance, in Golden Earrings in Spain, you see that you had an inquisition and then you have this bloodthirsty civil war. It's a repetition. In in Russia, you see this constant returning to a dictator. No matter how many forms of democracy they try, they end up with a dictator of some some form, whether it's a czar or whether it's Putin, it's it's a dictator. And with America, what I saw were these periods of incredible... Um, rampant materialism, but then some sort of disaster happens, whether it's the Civil War or whether it's the Titanic and the First World War or whether it's the global financial crisis or the attacks on the twin trade towers. It always uh, brings a return to soul-searching. And so that makes me think, what is going to happen with this current Gilded Age? Uh, to bring us all back to thinking uh, differently and, and looking at things differently and looking at things with the more humane eye and a, a less selfish um, eye. Yeah, and unfortunately, everybody, I think we're going to find out that answer sooner rather than later. <laughs> uh, well, I, the good I, thing about history is we can learn. So if we see a pattern and we see that we're repeating a pattern, that's where we can learn. Like, for instance, we can all say, um, I know that I overeat at Christmas so and then I hate myself all January. <laughs> well, you can say if I know that's my pattern, then how about just not overeating this Christmas, you know, so, yeah. I, I bought a box of cherries on the weekend, everyone. I'm fine. <laughs> uh, spotlighting the issues of our times. Uh, this this novel, it's timely. It's timely. We're talking about suffragettes. Um, I talk about Claire Wright's um, research into the history of suffragettes. Um, that's a book that's out uh, just recently here in Australia. Uh, you talk about domestic violence. You talk about the question of marriage as an institution itself yes. um, because more and more of us are going, well, hang on a cotton pick a minute. It's only once we're outside the marriage that we actually can be ourselves. That yes. comes through strongly in your novel as well. Yes. Yes, I think so. I think it's something that, um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being married and lots of people are very happily married, but I think what's explored in the novel is that really the only route to happiness. Um, Your happiness should be where you can really be yourself and you can really express yourself. And if you're trying to run away from yourself into a marriage, it's just, it's not going to work. It's really just not going to work. It's going to end up a, a great mess. And um, that's Emma's exploration that she decides before she can even think about marriage, she has to really know who she is. 
who who is this person she's marrying, not the other person, who is she, you know, that she's sending off into her marriage. And I think it's very important for all of us to make ourselves responsible for our own happiness rather than a romantic image that marriage is going to make us happy. Whether you get married or you don't get married, it's totally fine. But just to have a, uh, you know, a a view of it, uh, you know, not as the thing that's going to make your life. But, of course, for women in that period, it was seen as a survival. Um, It was an institution of survival. It was very difficult to survive as an independent woman, uh, financially, socially, uh, um, emotionally, you were really on the outside. Um, and so there were really quite brave women during that period to uh, to even think of that, to be these sort of uh, forerunners of that thinking. Now we see so many examples of women living like that. Nobody really thinks uh, one way or the other about it too strongly. But certainly then it was, you were really, you may as well said that you were going to build a spaceship and go to Mars as, as, as you were going to say you were making a conscious choice to remain single. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think um, that whole conversation, I think your novel makes us think. Like we're, yes. excuse me, everybody, we're all intel- intelligent thinking women, aren't we? And yes. we can pick up your book and we can read it and we can start to question in, in yeah. a safe environment, because when you're reading a novel, it, it is a very safe environment, yeah. but we can look at Carol and go, oh, Carolyn, we go, no, we don't like her very much at all. Yeah. But then we start to think about what it is about her that we don't like because yeah. even an antagonist, there has to be something in her that draws us in, doesn't yes. it? Yes, yeah, and exactly. She's quite charismatic. She's evil, but she's, she's appealing in some uh, bizarre way. Um, and that's that does say something about ourselves as well. Like, why are we uh, attracted to these sort of, um, you know, people as well? But I remember um, when I was at university in California, I had a German boyfriend who told me if I wanted to be taken seriously as a writer, I had to write books for men, not for women. And I just thought, what a load of baloney! That women, I see women as intelligent, very powerful. And that's how I um, create my characters in my stories. Is I and I have many male readers as well, so they do appreciate the stories in the history as well. But I'm very, very interested in powerful women, thinking women, women who live differently, um, who are utterly themselves, or who are trying to be utterly them themselves. And I think of women as the most worthy audience I could have. And um, I think that served me well to have that respect for my my readers to um, to give them books that are entertaining but also intelligent, uh, and you know that you can see things in history, they can see things about themselves in the story in an intelligent way. Yeah. Now I don't think I'm giving anything away, everybody, but we really are in there rooting for Emma. Um, but I don't <laughs> I don't want to give away the ending, but I do have a fair idea how this thing ends. Uh, two things. Now I did promise Belinda that I would go for thirty minutes. We're already eleven yeah. minutes over. But oh, in, wow. my de- in my defence, it's you, not me, because I'm trying very hard not to um, butt in here because everything yeah. that you're saying is just so fascinating. I've got two things I want to finish with. One is you talk about this is how Belinda writes. Everyone, she listens to music, uh, learns about language and culture, reads books uh, that were popular back then, which I just found just fascinating, and I almost stopped then. But then it says you pulled over cookbooks of the time. All this stuff is um, 
splattered in in your novels, isn't it? Yeah, I really do live the book as I write it. Um, And my friends joke I start to look a little bit like a character from that time period. When I was writing Golden Earrings, I was sort of looking like a flamenco dancer with flour in my hair and everything like that. And um, it's because I really do prepare for these stories like an actress preparing for a role. I I have to live these stories in order to bring um, them to life for my readers. I really have to know how does this world feel? How does it smell? You know, everything about it. Yeah. Yeah. How crappy um, is the food? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and by the way, I can't cook and the pastry's yeah. not rising. Yeah, um, and there's no deodorant. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't want to go, you know, we always read about women's yeah. month and all that. And I don't want to read about that stuff. Uh, now, Dragon Dictation, you're, you're an actress, you're a born storyteller. Have you dabbled in Dragon Dictation? I can see you dancing up and down the garden as you tell your stories and really drive your neighbours crazy. Um. You know, I do talk to myself an enormous amount. I am the person pushing the um, shopping trolley around the supermarket, <laughs> having, a, having a conversation with myself until I realise people are looking at me or pushing their trolleys away very quickly. But, um, no, I haven't tried that. My, I, my technology is to sit down in a seat and to work on my computer because I think otherwise HarperCollins might be waiting a very long time for my my novel if I don't really just get straight into it. But in the in-between times, a lot of talking to myself. Um, You know, quite often I've asked as people walk past my writing room, how many people are in there? Because (laughs) sometimes there's laughter going on, sometimes there's angry, you know, murmurs going on. Yeah, it is quite crazy. Yeah. Are your three cats in there with you? I know we all have yes, a cat on our yes. desk, everyone. You've got three oh, yeah. cats lined up. Oh, the ultimate a writing accessory, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have cat will write. Have three cats will write a lot. Uh, okay, finishing off, uh, what is next for us to look forward to? Well, uh, I'm writing the process of beginning a new love affair, uh, a, new, a new book, um, but I'm tossing up between whether I'm going to take everyone overseas or whether I'm going to keep us all in Australia. So at the moment, yeah, I'm, I'm going between those two. I'll probably do both eventually, but which one I do first, yeah, I'm in the process of thinking about. But whatever it is, um, I'm always growing. Each book I create a new challenge uh, for myself. Um, and so whatever I'm doing, I'm, I'm really going to go for atmosphere in this one. <laughs> Okay. Look, everyone, if you haven't got a copy of uh, The Invitation, you, you just have to do it. I'm sorry, there is no choice, especially if you have a little smattering of French like me. You can actually read a few of the words. Oh, uh, excellent. When I read Domestic Noir, I went, oh, that means black. I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, we see ourselves in both these characters. We've yes. heard a lot of the stories before. We can imagine the opulence. opulence. We know the poverty. Uh, so we all have something to take from your writing don't we yeah yeah Yeah. and I hope that everybody you know who reads it has a magical journey and feels that they've gone to the other side of the wardrobe and when they come back they don't know where they are yeah I think we're (laughs) going to call the the, call this podcast call this one everyone um walking through the wardrobe or something really romantic (laughs) uh now where can we find you although I think everybody knows where they can find you uh, yes, I have a Facebook page, so um, that's uh, Belinda Alexandra Author, and uh, my Instagram is the same, so I'm on Instagram and Facebook, and 
um, love to get people's comments. So, you know, come visit me on Facebook and, and Instagram and, you know, just let me know what you think of the invitation. Oh, you've got to love it. And don't forget all those, um, is it uh, the other seven books that are there waiting for you? Yes. There are treasure. I think I've read about four of them. Um, mm. But there is a quote on Belinda's page, which I just saw as we wrap up, and it says, happiness is knowing that your favourite author is going to write a new book and we know <laughs> that Belinda is not writing one new book but two. Yes, there you go. <laughs> uh, and that's it from this very special edition of our summer reading Christmas uh, 2018 with the most beautiful Belinda Alexandra. Oh, thank you so much. It's been awesome. <laughs> okay, bye for now from Right on the Road.